Genesis chapter 3 today. I'm going to read through Genesis 3 to start our time. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up. And easy to find Genesis, first book of the Bible. We're going to read through all of chapter 3. And chapter 3 represents not only the first big turning point in the book of Genesis, but really the climactic story turning point in the Bible. And so it's 24 verses. I'm going to read through the whole thing. And if you don't have a Bible to follow along with, we are going to put the verses up here on the screen so that you can see them as I read through them. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you, listened to the voice of, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. 
After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Let's pause and let's pray together before we go on. Father, thank you that you not only have spoken, but that you've spoken in a way that allows us to understand the life that we're experiencing in this world we're living in. Father, we know this is a sad story, but we also know that it's a story where you sow hope into tragedy. Father, as we approach this, we pray that you instruct us. We pray that you lead us. We pray most of all, in all things, that you lead us towards greater faith and trust in your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So obviously with Genesis 3, we, we have the opportunity to talk about sin. We had Genesis 1 with the creation of the world. We had Genesis 2 with kind of a more intimate portrait of the creation of the man and the woman and the initial time that they were together in the garden and this perfect paradise. And we get to Genesis 3 and we have what we typically call the fall of man. We have the first sin enter the world. And sin, if we were doing a, a bigger message just about determining what sin is, it, it would be bigger than the definition I'm just going to give you right now. But in 1 John chapter 3, um, John says sin is lawlessness. Somewhere at the core of sin is the idea that God has spoken and we've decided to do the opposite. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is when God has told us something and we ignore it or do something else. That's what Adam and Eve do in this story. God has given them a command about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they violate that command. And there, there's definitely different understandings of how sin works in our lives today. But I just want to ask the question as we get into this, because this is important for how we understand Genesis 3. Why is sin such a problem? And you might be tempted to say, the reason why sin is such a problem is because when we sin, we hurt other people. I say that's almost, that, that's true, almost 100% of the time, maybe, maybe 100% of the time that when we sin, we hurt other people. When we commit acts of violence, we hurt other people. When we lie, we hurt other people. When we steal, we hurt other people. When we commit adultery, we hurt other people. So, so it's almost always true that when we sin, other people get hurt. But according to Genesis 3, that's not the main problem with sin. And in a therapeutic culture like ours, we might be tempted to say sin is bad because it's self-sabotage. It's self-destructive. Sin is not good for us. We think it's good for us, but it ends up hurting us. It hurt Adam and Eve. And every time we sin, if we lie, we hurt ourselves because we compromise our own integrity. If we commit adultery, we hurt ourselves because we end up usually ruining our marriage. If we steal from others, we hurt ourselves because we're not taking the time to figure out how to earn things for ourselves. When we sin, we self-sabotage. And once again, Almost 100% of the time, that's true. Maybe even 100% of the time, that's true, that sin harms us. And at the same time, according to Genesis 3, that is not the primary problem with sin. The primary problem with sin is not what it does to our relationships with each other and not what it does to our relationship with ourselves. The primary problem with sin is that it alienates us from God. The reason why sin is a problem is not because somebody else doesn't like when you do it. And the reason why sin is a problem is not because ultimately you don't like when you do it. The reason why sin is a problem is because it cuts us off, it estranges us in our relationship with God. 
the primary reason why we have to deal with sin is not because of others, but because of God. And we see that in Genesis 3. And as we've been doing through this series, um, we, we, we read through and kind of talk through an extended portion. So I, I've read through chapter 3, but we're going to zero in on verses 1 through 7. We're going to zero in on the passage where the actual temptation happens and where the first sin takes place. And, and I want to just tell you that there's a couple of main things we can get from this. You know, Don, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. About you sitting front and center in a Boston jersey. <laughs> I was like trying to look anywhere but right in front of me. And then you don't silence your cell phone and you leave me no choice. <laughs> That's not even his normal seat. All right, I'm going to move on. <laughs> oh, that's going to be hard to recover from. <laughs> but but as, as we walk through these verses in Genesis 3, I'll tell you that there's, um, there's two really significant things we could say. That they're both important, but one is more important than the other. The, the less important one, but the one that still is helpful, is when we read through Genesis 3, we see the way that the serpent... Uh, the, the, the way that he effectively tempted the woman. We see his effect in temptation. We see his strategy. We get to look at that as people in the 21st century and say, Satan hasn't changed. Things haven't changed that much. Human nature hasn't changed. The strategies that he used there are still the typical strategies that he uses with us. So we get to look at that and we get to learn from that. We get to be warned about that. So, th so that's a very good thing that we can get from this passage. But what I want to say is even more than that, the primary thing that this passage does is not simply to instruct us about sin and temptation, but to instruct us about the world that we are now in and about ourselves now that the fall has happened. So look at this through the eyes of saying, all right, there is going to be some helpful insight into how to resist temptation. But the biggest thing that it's going to give us helpful insight into is understanding the world around us now that we're living post-fall. Well, what we're going to see as the, uh, the temptation unfolds is we're going to see two things that sin perverts about God. And the first one in verses one through three is, is we're going to see that sin perverts God's commands because that's where the serpent begins. And just in starting this off, the, the author of Genesis doesn't give this deep insight into what's going on. He just says the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals. We do read in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, and get overt statements that Satan is the serpent. So Satan is inhabiting the serpent here. He is the tempter. Jesus called him a liar from the beginning. So, so sometimes I'll talk about the serpent. Sometimes I'll talk about Satan because I think the New Testament makes that clear. But it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And right away we see, all right, here's the initial strategy. The initial strategy is to attack the command of God, to poke doubt in the command of God. Just listen to the beginning of it again. Did God really say to any of you, some of, some of you are, are still pretty young um, and, and, and you know, you, you're still in your parents' home. But if you're not that young, just, just try to remember back of what it was like to say, did mom really say we could only have one cookie? Did dad really say I had to mow the lawn? Did the teacher really say, did the coach really say? You can sense the tone already. Did God really say this? 
poking a little bit of doubt for Eve. And the, the other thing that you'll notice here is um, what the serpent asks, that there's an easy answer to this question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's the answer? Yeah. No. I, sorry, I thought it was an easy answer. Yeah. The answer is no. God didn't forbid all of the trees in the garden. In fact, Eve corrects him, largely corrects him on this. She says, no, 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 the, serpent, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. God didn't outlaw all of these trees. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now, some of you already noticed this. If you go back to chapter two and see the initial command that God gave to the man, um, the, there's no mention of this whole idea of you shall not touch it. You must not touch it either. So people theorize what, what's going on here is, is this is the idea that, you know, the command was initially given to Adam. And once Eve was created, Adam sort of added this in. He was like, not only don't eat from it, but don't even touch it. Um, or is this something where as the serpent is poking doubt into Eve's mind, even though she gets the gist of the command right, she's not precise in it. And some people make much of the idea, well, maybe that lack of precision is part of what leads her to begin to doubt and go down the road to temptation. I'll just say, I think that's possible, but I kind of land on the side of saying she pretty much gets it right here. She pretty much gets it right and says, no, we are allowed to eat from the different trees. God is not a killjoy. God is actually very permissive, but there's one tree that we're not allowed to eat from. But even with the initial engagement, we come to the idea that the initial question was, did God really say? The initial question shows part of the strategy of the enemy. And part of the strategy of the enemy is he wants to poke holes. He wants to poke doubt in God's commands. And, you know, there are times where part of the way that we lead or we follow down the road to temptation is we begin to wonder, does God's command really apply to the situation? Did God really forbid this exactly? Instead of looking at God's commands and believing what 1 John says about God's commands, and some of you know this passage, he says, his commands are not burdensome. Now, I'm not going to ask for all of you to raise your hands, but just nod your head if, if what I'm about to say that you find to be true. Um, do you sometimes find God's commands to be burdensome? Sometimes they definitely seem burdensome. We're like, well, that's a nice thing to say, John. But all of these different commands, you know, don't take your own revenge. Don't strike back at somebody who's done something to you. Don't lie, even if you're, you're in a situation where you feel cornered. Um, you know, don't look at that. Don't touch that. There are times that we can say, well, gosh, sometimes the commands do seem kind of burdensome. They lead us to live pretty countercultural lives if we follow through on what God has called us to do. And yet John says his commands are not burdensome. And a big part of the reason why God's commands are not burdensome is because God is a good father giving good commands that are for our good. But back to the initial question, did God really say? I think one of the things that we can often do that leads us down the road to temptation is we can begin going around on that question, did God really say? And we're not necessarily unclear on what the scriptures say. What we make ourselves less clear on is, does his command really apply to this situation? Um, the, there's a kid on uh, my son's soccer team who, who I'm coaching. And his kid is, he's hysterical and he's full of energy and he's awesome. And he also is like the bane of my existence as I'm coaching them. 
um, because he's just so full of energy and uh, he's a little hard to rein in. So we were doing this drill uh, the other day at practice where um, I had all the balls in one spot so we could just have one kid practice kicking all of them at once. It was really hard to get them all in one spot because the kids wanted to kick them all around. And there, there was this one kid, this kid who's just, you know, he's, he's a spark plug. He's full of energy. And he was running towards this ball. I just got all the balls finally in place. He was running towards it. I swear, before he got there, I think I got at least four times out. Don't kick that ball. Don't kick that ball. Don't kick that ball. Don't kick that ball. Anybody want to guess what he did? Yeah, he kicked the ball. Now, the, the steam coming out of my ears when this happens. Now, here's the deal. You can look at that and say, he did it because he's defiant. And the deal is, sometimes that is what happens. Sometimes we sin because we are just defiant. That isn't actually what was going on there. I know what was going through his head. What was going through his head was basically this. Coach has an idea of what would be best to do. I have a better idea. My idea is better than coach's idea, so I'll go ahead and kick the ball. It's not that he hadn't heard me, and it's not that he was unclear on it, and he wasn't just like, I don't care what coach says. He just thought if coach knew all the facts, he would want me to kick the ball. And how many times in our lives do we look at God's commands to us and we say, oh, I know he says that I'm not supposed to return evil with evil, but what this person said to me, if God knew they were going to say it to me, he would know the command does not apply to me. If God knew how cornered I was in this situation, he would have said it was okay for me to go ahead and tell that lie. If God knew how miserable my spouse was to live with, he would have okayed the divorce or maybe even okayed the adultery. If God knew my situation, he would have given me an exception to it. And you can already see Satan sowing the doubt in there. Did God really say, does this really apply to your situation? He begins by attacking the command, by perverting the command. But what he does next is even more significant because he moves on from perverting the command to perverting God's character. Now, he's pretty subtle in verse one. Did God really say? He's asking the question. Verse four, he's no longer subtle. He just outright contradicts God. You will not certainly die, which is the exact opposite of what God said to them in chapter two. You will certainly die. He says, you will not certainly die for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you just to look closely at verse five, either in your Bibles or up on the screen, however you're following along. And I want you to notice that in verse five, there is not a single thing that the serpent says that isn't true. Starts off, for God knows. Does God know? Yeah, God knows everything. So far, so good. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Is that true? Yeah, that's what happens in verse seven. Their eyes were open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you remember towards the end of the passage, God says, now they are like us, knowing good from evil. This is not an untrue statement that he's making here. And this is one of the subtleties of what he does in verse five is that he doesn't tell an outright lie about what will happen, but he absolutely deceives about the situation. The most effective lies are built on some foundation of the truth, some foundation of familiarity. It's not so much the exact words that he uses, but it's the way that he's painting God. He's painting God as somebody who's holding out on Eve. He doesn't want your best possible life. He is trying to hold you back. He's trying to keep you in the darkness. He's trying to keep you away from your best possible future. 
God knows that you'll be just like him. You know, there could be a different way. He could have said this in a different way where it would have been a warning. He could have said, hey, God said this because he knows if, if you do this, your eyes will be open and you'll know no good from evil. He could have said it as a warning. Instead, he says it basically as permission. This would be like some of you were in the military and uh, in the military, somebody could make this critique. Somebody could say, you know what? In the military, they don't want people thinking for themselves. They don't want people going rogue. They don't want people, they, they, don't, they, they don't really encourage free thinking in the military. They drill you till you just do what you're trained to do. But you could have somebody else communicate those same facts and say, here's the deal. In the military, they don't encourage free thinking so that when you're in the crisis situation, you don't think about it, you just do what you've been trained to do. And did you notice how the same thing in those two different ways? One of the ways it was, they're really out to hold the soldiers back. And one of them was, they are looking to set the soldiers up for success. The servant says something that's true, but he says it in a way that's painting for us a picture of God, that God wants to hold the best things from us. And I just want to say from from personal experience and, and from what I think is in the passage also here, I believe the greatest danger for us is not that we would be unaware of God's commands. That is a danger. And especially in a world where we're less biblically literate in our culture than in sometimes past in the United States, it is important that we know what God's word says. But I think there are a lot of us that we kind of know. And when we're doing something wrong, we kind of know that we're doing something that's wrong. Our biggest danger is not that we started doubting God's commands. It's that we've started doubting God's character. Said, I know that God has said this, but if I want the best life I can live, I have to do this. I have to violate God's commands. We're pretty duplicitous in this. In fact, I, I watched this documentary a couple of years ago, about a hundred years ago in our country when we had prohibition for a while. And one of the really interesting things that happened in that documentary is they talked about the fact that during that time where alcohol was illegal, the vast majority of the people who still drank during that time were the people who had stumped for prohibition. They were the rich, well-to-do people who thought prohibition was a really good idea. They continued to drink alcohol during this time, and their reasoning basically went like this. Well, we need these laws so that poor people don't blow all of their money on alcohol and then go and do stupid things and commit crimes to ruin their lives and end up in jail. But we're okay. We know better. We know how to handle it. The very people who would say this is a good law that we've prohibited alcohol were the same people who are violating it. We as human beings are utterly capable of this. And it's a good thing, and most people should follow that law, but you don't know my situation. And if God knew my situation, he would want me to violate what he's called me to do. Our danger is not just that we doubt God's commands, it's that we doubt his character. And then you get to see in verse six, you get to see the appeal of the fruit, kind of a threefold appeal of the fruit. It was when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. So it kind of satisfies the physical appetite. We all have physical appetites that we want to fulfill. It was pleasing to the eye. It looked pretty. It was nice to look at. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. And then you read, I've referenced several times 1 John this morning, but in 1 John chapter 2, John talks about the way of the world. And he talks about three things. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's basically what you see here in Genesis 3. You see Eve saying, um, it looks pretty and I like that. It will taste good and I like that. And it will make me great and I like that. 
most of your temptations will relate to one of those three things. It looks nice. It'll make me feel nice. It'll make me important. But then verse six ends with a subtle but really significant statement. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So if you're like me, as you're reading this story, you're kind of painting a mural in your mind. You're like, all right, I'm painting a mural of this story. And we've got, you know, the, the scene here and we've got the serpent here and we've got Eve right over here. And we've got the tree back there in this discussion, serpent talks and Eve talks and serpent talks and Eve talks. And suddenly we realize we have to repaint the mural because we got the serpent, we got the tree, we got Eve, and we got Adam there the entire time standing silently like a chump. Like, who was with her? What's he been doing this whole time? He was the one given the initial command. Right away, you should have said to the servant, hey, why are you talking to her? You go ahead and talk to me. No, we're not going to do this. Remember what God said? He is just standing there passively. And not only does he stand there passively while she's tempted, when she gives him the fruit, he says, good enough for her, good enough for me. He eats it. So absolute passivity is just pathetic and just adds to the tragedy of this situation where God had given a special nobility to the man to take the servant-hearted lead, and he utterly fails in doing this. In fact, one of the things, and it's not the main point, but one of the things that's a fallout from this whole situation, if you were paying attention when we read that there's a curse to the serpent, and then there's a curse to the woman, and then there's a curse to the whole earth through the man. And what he says to the woman is basically two things. He says, um, you're gonna have pain in childbirth. So this thing that would be your greatest point of joy where you're bringing life into the world, it's now going to be marred by pain and often throughout human history by death and by great danger to the woman. And then the second thing that he says is basically you're going to have relational pain. It says your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, which basically boiled down to it means this. Ever since the fall, male-female relationships have been strained. It says to the woman, you're going to manipulate him and the man's going to dominate you. That's how this is going to go. Welcome to every marriage ever, where you have the dynamic. We're like, all right, he's physically stronger. So there's a danger that goes there. And she's much better at talking circles around him. And he's not figuring out what's going on. This is the typical male-female dynamic, not just within marriage, especially within marriage, but, but in our culture. And it's previewed here in Genesis 3. The part of the fallout for this is that there was going to be disharmony between the sexes, where there was going to be a great complementarity and harmony between them beforehand. Now, verse seven gives us the first taste of the fallout of this. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And this is the tragic contrast to the way that chapter two ended. When chapter two, verse 25 says, they were naked and they had no shame. Now they realize they're naked and they have great shame to the point that they cover themselves up. It's a tragedy. Because the great thing about chapter two, verse 25 is they were completely open to God and completely open to each other. And now they're hiding from each other. As we see in the very next verse, they also hide from God, which didn't work, surprisingly. God comes. And by the way, when God is sort of interrogating them, where where were you? Where are you? What did you do? Did you do this? Please don't read that as God's really confused about what's happened here. God is being a good father and trying to get them to fess up. Just like you do with your kid. Oh, did you do this? Oh, how did you get hurt? It happens all the way by, all the time, by the way, with my youngest son, where, uh, where he'll talk about, he shares a room with his brother and he'll talk about like, I got hurt. And I'm like, how did you get hurt? And he says, Jack did this to me. I'm like, well, how did Jack get close enough to you 
that he was able to do that. And David pauses and he says, I was out of bed. <laughs> I'm asking the question, even though I know the answer. I'm like, well, how did this transpire? God's saying, well, how did this all happen? So he interrogates them for a while. And then, of course, you have the pathetic blame game that happens afterwards. And just in case you don't know why I paused dramatically at that point, it wasn't to try to highlight that this was the woman's fault. It was to try to highlight just how pathetically Adam handles this when he's confessing his sin. He doesn't say, I ate, and one of the reasons I ate is because the woman gave it to me. He says, the woman you put here with me, that's the entire beginning of it. (laughs) Which by the way, if you read closely, he's not only blaming Eve, he's blaming God. He's like, well, you're the one who put her here. This was your big idea. (laughs) Like I was doing fine until she came along. Um, the, the woman's blame is, is not nearly as big. She does do a little bit of blame shifting. She says the serpent deceived me, which actually is true. She gives a much more accurate account of what happened. And then God walks through the different curses. And you notice in, you know, that there's a curse to the serpent. There's a curse to the woman. There's a curse to the man. And the curse to the man isn't just a curse to the man. It's a curse to the entire created order. All of creation fell when humanity fell. The reason why we have war, the reason why we have earthquakes, the reason why we have disasters, the reason why work is frustrating, the reason why we have conflict and divorce, and the reason why we have all these things happen is because of what happened here in Genesis 3. The reason the world is the way that you are currently experiencing the world is because of what happened back here. But here's the good news. Before God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he told them there is a way that they could fix this. No, actually, he didn't say that at all. (laughs) Guys are like, where was that verse? I didn't remember a verse about him telling them. He doesn't say anything about how you can fix it. He says, you're out. You're out of the garden. And ever since that day, we've been living in this same world of brokenness and frustration and broken relationships and death. Even though in this day, Adam and Eve don't die, the death process begins not only for them, but for the world and for all their descendants after them. God kicks them out of the garden and there is no mention that there's anything they can do to fix it. And by the way, there's also no mention that there's anything that you can do to fix this. We all follow Adam and Eve into guilt and shame and there's nothing we can do to fix it. But there is a hint of something. In fact, two hints are given. In chapter three, verse 15, there's the first kind of cryptic prophecy that happens. And the cryptic prophecy is when God is speaking to the serpent and he says, your offspring and the woman's offspring. And by the way, Adam named her Eve because everybody was gonna be her offspring. He says, all right, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring are gonna have conflict. There's gonna be warfare between them, which is at least on the surface, one way of saying all humanity will be at war with Satan for the rest of eternity. This is just what's going to happen or the rest of the known world. That is what will happen. But he also says, that the serpent will strike the heel and the man will strike the serpent's head. It's a prophecy. And you know, I mean, if, if you're gonna get hit, it's better to get hit in the heel than hit in the head. There's clearly a victory here for the descendant of the woman. There's the first cryptic prophecy about a victory over the enemy far in the future. But there's also something else that happens. And this happens in verse 21. Verse 21 says, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I just want you to take this in because I left verse seven up here because God clothes them, but they already had clothes on, right? 
They had gone and got a bunch of leaves and they had made themselves coverings. And yet we get to verse 21 and God decides to clothe them. Now here's the deal. The only reason why God would decide to clothe them is because he looked at their clothing and determined that it was inadequate. Said, you're in pathetic leaf suits. I'm going to give you an animal skin. And some people even make a big deal about the fact that, all right, if it's a skin, then that means God must have killed an animal and we have the first animal sacrifice. I'd say that that certainly is possible. That's not explicitly talked about. So I don't think we're meant to get hung up on that. I think what we are meant to get hung up on is the fact that they had clothes, but God still clothed them. And again, think of this with verse seven, because this is so profound. In verse seven, the reason that they clothe themselves is because they have shame, because they have guilt, and they're trying to do something to cover that up. Now, how familiar is that to us today? We know we have shame. We know we have guilt, and we try to find ways to deal with it. We try to find ways to fix it. And we've got some solutions. We have at least four ways that we try to deal with the shame in our lives. I mean, maybe step one is we just deny. We say, I didn't do that. I didn't do anything wrong. We can cover up our shame by just saying that never happened. I have no sin. I didn't do that. So denial is one strategy. It usually doesn't work super well, but it's a strategy we might have. All right, I'm just going to deal with my shame by denying that I have anything to be ashamed of. But if we get to the point of saying, all right, I, I do have things to be ashamed of, then we're probably going to move on from denial. And the second way that we're going to try to cover ourselves up is through comparison. Well, sure, I did that, but it wasn't that bad. It's not like I murdered anyone. It's not like I committed some massive crime. And it's not like I didn't do stuff that everybody else already kind of does. So we can cover ourselves with denial or we can cover ourselves with comparison, saying I'm no worse than anyone else. And if we want to move on from denial and comparison, maybe we would move on to try to, cover, to try to cover ourselves with justification. Say, well, here's the deal. I did do it and I know it was wrong, but I had a good reason for doing it. I had good reason for doing it. A man can only be pushed so far before he does something like that. Somebody can only be so cornered before they strike out. You can only be so desperate before you act in that way. So maybe we don't compare ourselves, but we say, even though it technically was wrong, Anybody in my place would have done that same thing. I was justified in acting that way. And maybe after we've used all those coverings, the only one left is, is to try to offset in some way that we say, oh, I really did do something wrong. I really am ashamed of it. I really shouldn't do it. I'm going to make it up though. I'm going to make it up with good works and I'm going to give a lot of money to charity and I'm going to go to church and I'm going to really try to be good and not do this again. I'll make up for it. I'll, I'll get myself clothes by denying that anything happened or by comparing myself to other people or by justifying myself or by offsetting it with some good deeds. And God looks at all four of those strategies and he says, pathetic leaf suits. That's all you're wearing. And our solution is not that we find a way to cover ourselves. Our only solution is that God clothes us. God clothes Adam and Eve. In this moment of their greatest failure, he shows grace by clothing them when they were unable to clothe themselves. And this indicates that there's actually a much deeper need from humanity. And it also references the fact that ultimately we are not going to be the ones to solve our problem. We are only going to be clothed and our shame is only going to be covered if God does something to cover our shame. Well, now I do have good news for you. God did something to cover our shame. 
God sent his one and only son to die as a sacrifice so that our clothes would be washed in the blood of the lamb so that we would be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus so that God would look at us naked and ashamed and cover our shame by the work that he did. Even back in the sad story of Genesis 3, God is teaching us something. He's teaching us that even though we fail, he is the one that brings final help into our situation. We sang about it today. We sang about how God is mighty to save. We sang about how the Lord is our salvation. We are not our salvation. The Lord is our salvation. So you might be listening to this and saying, there's a lot of bad news in this passage. There's bad news. And the bad news is that I'm in a broken world. And the bad news is that I'm part of the problem in this broken world. And that I'm going to have problems and I'm going to continue to have temptation. And the further bad news is that all these attempts that I've made to cover up and make up for the bad things that I've done, that none of those work. None of those really satisfy anything before God. There's a lot of bad news in this passage. But the good news is this. If God is the one who clothes you, then that means this for any of you who are here today and you are experiencing shame. What it means is you get to confidently approach the throne of grace. You get to confidently go before God and not say, I was good this week, so you should listen to me. I gave a lot of money, so you should answer my prayer. We go to God and say, I come to you clothed with the righteousness that only comes from Jesus, washed and all my sins taken away because of what Jesus did for me. I come to you clothed in what was given to me. And that's why you should listen to me. And that's why you should answer my prayers. And that's why I believe I have any excuse at all to be in your presence. If you are experiencing shame right now, the way that you get rid of it is not by justifying it or denying it or comparing yourself or offsetting it. It is by throwing yourself completely on the mercy of God through the sacrifice of Jesus and enjoying that your shame is now covered. And by the way, for any of you that are here this morning that aren't Christians, the invitation is for you. The invitation is for you to throw yourself on the mercy of God through Jesus, to recognize that you need to be covered to recognize that you need forgiveness and to recognize that your efforts to cover yourself are simply a leaf suit that's never gonna get it done. But God has offered to cover you through Jesus. The ultimate problem with sin is that it alienates us from God. But God is the one who provides the solution to the problem we created. Let's pray together as we close our time. Father, thank you. Thank you for telling us the hard truths. Thank you that even when we read a passage that's tragic and uh, shameful, that you not only reveal to us the truth and tell us the hard truth about ourselves and about our world, but Father, thank you so much that you give us hope in the midst of shame. Thank you that when we experience shame, you've given us a path out. And that path isn't through pretending that we're better than we are. That path is through enjoying the covering that you've given us. Thank you for washing our clothes in the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice to bring us into the family. Thank you that we can be your adopted sons and daughters despite the fact that we broke this world that you gave us. Father, I pray that you lead us to live in the joy of your covering. And Father, I pray that you lead us to live in the sobriety of the temptations that we face. Lead us to see your goodness so fully that we don't fall for the tricks of the enemy and lead us to so fully enjoy your grace and your forgiveness 
that we show that to others and invite them in to the goodness of what you've done. We pray this in the name of our Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.